saw it twice last week, and it still makes me cry. Amen. Good morning, Freedom Center. And I want to say it right for the first time I've ever said this publicly. Welcome, Pontotoc, Mississippi campus. I am glad, we are glad that you're part of us. And uh, of course, Grand Blank, that's easy to say, but Pontotoc has a silent T in it somewhere or something. I don't know. So he said, it's, it's, an, it's an Indian name. I'm like, oh, okay, it's Pontiac, only it's a pontoon boat that talks or something. I don't know. I got a mental picture and it helped me out. So how many guys enjoyed uh, hearing the story of, of the McKay family last week and Amber's courageous, you know, declarations, them being transparent and talking about it? One of the things that came out of that conversation, I really felt like we needed to revisit today was the power of shame and how, as Amber looked at the thought of sobriety, she said, but how do I do this? Like, how many guys know that sometimes we live our lives in such a way for the flesh, for ourselves, in ignorance, in fear, in greed, whatever it is, whatever we've done. And we, the thought of turning around now and repenting is one of many thoughts. I can get right with God with a prayer, but how do I get right with people when what I've done has hurt so many people? How, how do I get right with God when, when my shame is not from what I've done, but what others have done to me, I've been a victim. And so today, we want to come back and really start to think about this from a biblical point of view, because what is programmed inside of people will lead us to death. Our natural placement of shame will cause us to hide, cause us to flee, cause us to isolate ourselves. And if you look at Second Peter, it talks about your enemy, the devil prowls about as a roaring lion. There, there's, there's a clue to how the devil hunts. It's lion-like. He looks for the wounded. He looks for the isolated. He looks for the weak. He looks for the vulnerable. He doesn't run into the middle of a herd of, of healthy antelope. He kind of sits on the outskirts and looks for something that's tasty, but vulnerable. Does that make sense? So today, how many of you guys know that shame will make you devil bait? So we've been talking, somebody said recently that a phrase that was helpful to them was that I said, shame off you instead of shame on you, shame off you. And it was kind of like, well, I never thought of that. I just thought I had to carry the weight of my shame with me. I am here to tell you today that the gospel of Jesus Christ declares that shame belongs to the devil, but not to God's kids. And we can walk free from shame. And let's talk a little bit more. Just, let's just define it for a second. Shame occurs when... Number one, we allow our enemy to define us by our failures, that which we did wrong, our weaknesses, that which we are not, that we wish we were, but we're not, and by our pains, that which has been done to us. Shame occurs when we are defined. Everybody say defined. In other words, when I look in the mirror, what I see is not what God sees. What I see is what I believe the devil sees, what I believe God even sees when he looks at me. That we allow our enemy to define us by our failures. Number two is we agree with the verdict or the conclusion of our accuser, and, be, and because of shame, we accept condemnation. So we don't come to God in worship, which is what we're talking about now, worship, uh, but we also don't come to God in prayer. We don't come into relationship with other people that, that are holy people or good people or honest people. Why? Because we're not holy and we're not good. And we're not honest. I am, by definition, the worst thing that I've ever done before God is what shame would tell you, right? Our identity, everybody, everybody say define, say agree, identity. Our identity becomes that of a lawbreaker. I, I am guilty. I'm a victim. I'm abused or I'm an abuser. I'm a failure who's far from God and undeserving of redemption. I just, if you're not taking notes, this still would be a good moment to write this down. Shame occurs when we quote to God what the devil said to us and expect him to say amen. Shame occurs when we quote to God what the devil said to us and we expect him to agree. We expect him to say, well, yes, you, you are unworthy of my love. Yes, you are unworthy of good things. Yes, you are 
unworthy of relationship. No, you can't tell anybody that because if they ever knew who you really were, what you'd really done or what really been done to you, they wouldn't love you. When we look at God and we quote to God Satan and expect his amen, we are by definition condemned. Now, what we did is forgivable. You say, I don't know if it is. Let's, let's take a look at what Jesus does in people's lives. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. You know this uh, pretty clearly. In verse 11, we're going to add on to that. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. God's that powerful. God's that good. Jesus' sacrifice was enough. There was no sin in him, so he could be raised from the dead. You will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe. You trust, you know, and you're justified. It's just if I'd never sinned. Let me say, what's the the definition of being justified? It's just if I'd never sinned. Let me read to you again. You will be saved, for it's with the heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone, who's this for? Anyone who believes in him will never be put to Shame is not the legacy, the destiny, or the destination of God's children. As much as it feels natural and normal, we've even come to a place where there's a professional, oh, I want to say this right without indicting others and trying to, I'm trying to relieve shame, not create more or separation, but you would understand that there are some types of sermons that make you feel guilty. So you come to this altar today and you give your life, and, and in some ways, I actually heard a guy say, if you were speeding on your way to church today, you transgressed the laws of God. And I'm just like, seriously? Like your theology is the sign says 70. I do 71 and the angel jumps out of my car and goes thinner. <laughs> that, that's the level that you believe God's commitment is to you is one wrong move, one transgression, one, one, and, and God is like, I'm done with you. And he was getting an altar call based on speeding. How many guys know the altars would be full every week? I'm not saying speeding is a good idea. I'm just saying, let's be careful which voice we allow to define who we are before God because whoever we believe we are before God is who we are. And if we're free, we're free. And if we're ashamed, then we're ashamed. Look, look what John says in John chapter 3, verse 20. He goes, if our hearts condemn us, our hearts, if our hearts go, oh man, the devil's talking, I did, and I mean, I'm, I'm guilty. If our hearts condemn us, we know God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Now, I think what John is trying to bring out, because he was there when Jesus was crucified, he goes, I know the price paid for mankind. I know how great that work was. I saw the resurrected body of Jesus. I, I, I ate with him. I embraced him. I, I know him. I know the pain, the suffering, the crucifixion, the blood, the shame, the nakedness. I was with his mother. We were both bawling. I know what it took to buy you. So you can say, yeah, but I stole a gumball. But I'm telling you what he did for you is greater than what you did with that gumball. So even if your heart goes, you did something wrong, the devil goes, ah, ha, ha, ha. How many times do you have to steal before you're a thief? Ah. I'm not trying to minimize sin. I hope, I hope, I'm not trying to minimize sin. Does this make sense? There's consequences for, for sin, but shame is not one of those consequences once sin is dealt with by Jesus. I like what... Uh, Eugene Peterson does in the message translation of that same verse. It goes, it all, it also, it's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there's something to it. I like that he brings out that one point. The original language is certainly there. That, like this debilitating self-criticism. I'm such a, oh, I'll never, oh, I, I am so, I, I am so, like this debilitating, I, I won't dream, I won't think, I won't believe, I won't trust, I won't bond. 
because I know what I've done and I know who I've done it to and I know who's done it to me and I, I'm just, I am the worst thing that I ever did. He said, it's a way to shut down debilitating self-criticism even when there's something to it. It's not denying that we did something shameful. Are you getting this? How many of you guys have ever done something shameful? Raise your hand. If you didn't raise your hand, you just lied in church. Raise your hand. We've all done something shameful. And the solution is not to deny the shamefulness of it. The solution is to resolve the shame through forgiveness and, and reconciliation with God. So here's, here's three things I would love for you to get out your phone and take a picture of as meditative truth, something that we're going to establish with Scripture, but a single slide that you just kind of go click, and I'll do my best to stay out of the way because I know how distracting this can be. I, I get that. I, we no longer have a couch in the way. We've got... Years of cheeseburgers in the way, and I'll try to move it out of the way, all right? I'm not ashamed of that, by the way. Maybe I should be. Three meditative truths for you to think about every day. Number one is this. Because of what Jesus has done for you, get your cameras ready, right? Because of what Jesus has done for you, you are not what you have done. Because of what, I'm sorry, I look over here, he's looking at me. I go this way. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you are no longer what you've done. So what my identity is, we get a report card that tells me what I've done. We get, we get a, a, a parent that walks in our room and says, it's clean, it's not clean. Judge on what we've done. Are you telling me that what I'm doing doesn't matter? No, I'm saying this. Your identity is separate from your performance. John chapter three, verse three, Jesus says, okay, I'm not gonna paint over rust and call it new. John chapter three, verse three, he's talking to Nicodemus just late at night. Nick sneaks in. Hey, so you're kind of like doing this great stuff. I'm a Pharisee. If they catch me here, I'm gonna totally lose my seat. But I'm... I thought it was a phone. It's a kid. I thought it was a phone. I was like, let me answer it. But it's a kid. It's hard to answer a kid. I'm just saying. But I, I, he says, you know, well, how, do, how, does, how can I do this? I, I, like, there's something about you. I don't have what you have. What is it? And he goes, you know, if a man wants to see the kingdom of heaven, he must be born what? In other words, you, there has to be a trust in God that's so absolute that there's, there's an understanding that who you were the moment before your decision is not who you will ever be again before God. Now, again, just to be clear, so we're not, I don't want to confuse you. When I give my life to Jesus, if I'm a million dollars in debt because I was, uh, I just could never be satisfied. My sin was more and more and more and more. And I got more and more, but I borrowed money. And when I give my life to Jesus, I'm a million dollars in debt. How much do I owe the following morning? Like, yeah, 1.1 million because of interest. Before God, what do I owe? Nothing. Before man, what do I owe? The million plus interest. So this is what I'm talking about. Like, you know, there's, there's evidence that I should feel condemned. There's evidence of my shame. I'm not saying there's not evidence for the things we've done wrong. What I'm saying is this. God chooses to see you through the blood of Jesus that was paid for the sins of covetousness and greed and licentiousness, whatever that means, and lust and fear and all these things. God sees through that, through the blood of Jesus, and what he sees is someone whom is described as we are the holiness of God. We are the righteousness of God. Are you here? So in other words, what God sees is what is. What man sees is what was. And you get to decide what you're going to look at to decide who you are. I got goosebumps and I'm the one preaching, man. I'm telling you. You're not what you've done. You can't be. If you are what you've done, then what Jesus did was unnecessary because it didn't solve anything. You are not what you've done. You're what God has done for you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says you're a new creation or a new creature, if you prefer that, a new thing. You're not a rusty bike that was Krylon spray-painted. You're a new bike. 
When God looks at you, but there's rust, but there's decay. I, I know. And ashes to ashes and dust to dust and shrins turn into rust and rust. I get that. But understand this, what God sees when he looks at you is his eternal son, his eternal daughter, who is saved, redeemed, righteous, holy, in right standing. If you were to walk up to God and say, God, I'm just so ashamed of what I did. And he'd say, listen, if you believe what you've done is more powerful than I've done, then we need to have a conversation. Because what you've done is not more powerful than what I've done, right? I love in John chapter 8 where the woman's caught in the act of adultery. And the whole community is around her going, oh, this woman caught in the very, Jesus, what shall we do with a sinner like this? And they're calling her an adulterer. Why? Because that's what she's done. I don't know what her name was, but in that community from that day forward, her name was not, a, was not you know, I'm trying to think, Beatrice. I'm trying to think of a name that no one would have here. If you're here and your name's Beatrice, then we got two problems. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Your mama hated you and, and this, that I used your name. I'm sorry. It's, is there anybody here named Beatrice? Please say there's nobody here, Nate. Somebody online, perhaps. Beatrice, I love you. Shame off you. But your mama, I just, I just, I don't know why she named you that, right? But she, they're defining her by what she's done. What does Jesus call her? You may remember in John chapter 8, when they all leave, he without sin casts the first stone, the oldest, the youngest walks away, it's just her and Jesus. He says, daughter, I just gave you the answer. What's he call her? He doesn't call her adulteress. Why? Because he doesn't see her for what she's done. He sees her for who she is. Daughter, you know what that means? I don't like what you did, but you are mine. No, 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 you're what you did. You're, you're, the community says, this woman was caught in that. She's an adulteress. We should stone. Shut your pile. Because what you think and your religious judgments and your criticism put shame on her. The pain of shame is supposed to scare the community into righteousness. But righteousness is not achieved by fear. It's achieved by faith in the righteous one. We, we become like Jesus when we hang out with him. So what's the devil want to do? He wants to make sure we never hang out with him because he is so holy and we are such wretches. I'm not saying you weren't a wretch before you got saved. You are a wretch. But when Jesus made you born again, you are a new creation and you are no longer what you've done. You are what he has done for you. Come on. Luke 15, the prodigal son. You realize the father never calls the son prodigal? What does he call him? He calls him this son of mine was dead, but is now alive. The, the parable of the prodigal son, we had those words to it. The father in the parable never calls his son prodigal. Not once. When he decided to come home, God decided to make sure that he knew who he really was in his eyes. Man, I, guys, hear me. We have people that walk around in shackles that don't exist. They live in prisons that aren't real. Because somewhere between their ears and somewhere between their heart and their head, they've taken an identity as the worst thing they've ever done. This who I am. You don't understand, Jim. What I did, who I, who I was, how I treated people, how I acted, how I behaved. This is who I am. No, you are what Jesus has done for you. On this side of the cross, everybody's free, baby. On that side of the cross, everybody's in prison. Everybody's in chains. But I have met prisoners, like literally in prison, that are freer than free people who believe lies. So today, I'm just, I'm just here telling you this. If we're going to be worshipers of God, we have to understand that what he has done is more powerful and effective and meaningful. But you don't understand, Jim. My sin cost someone else so dearly. I, 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 how could I ever forgive myself for doing it? And again, I, I'm not minimizing that. I know I'm being loud and passionate. I want to talk to another group of people that are like, no, it is right for me to feel shame the rest of my life. Please hear me. 
you embracing the pain of shame is not bringing anybody back. You embracing the pain of shame is not correcting what you did to someone. You punishing yourself. Is there punishment that's due? Yes. That's why Jesus is covered in wounds and scars and nail holes and and crown of thorn holes and a spear hole. Why? Because all of the righteous indignation, that which a holy God had to enforce as right, was laid upon him in full. And because of that, now we are free. And if you're living in bondage to what happened 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, or 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 seconds ago, if you're living in bondage to that, you are living outside of what God has created for you to live in. This isn't heaven yet. This isn't hell yet. This is a place that has a lot of stuff that goes on. We make terrible decisions, choices. And sometimes, honestly, I've seen more often than not, people punish themselves for the act of someone else's free will. Parents do this a lot. Mothers, fathers, bosses, pastors. If I would have just more, if I just less, I would have just, and I, I, and I, I'm not saying we can't learn from mistakes and failures. I'm just simply saying this. You can't live as a mistake and as a failure and live the life that Jesus died to give you. You still here? Second thing, because of what Jesus has done for you, oh, this is going to be hard. You are not what others have done to you. What was that noise? That was weird. But it was a wonderfully timed, solemn moment that turned into comedy, so I'm, I'm okay with that. Sometimes shame doesn't come from what we did. It comes from what others have done to us. Um, John chapter 4, verse 23. Let's just talk there for a second. Jesus, it's, a, it's accounting in the Gospels where he's talking about Jesus went from town to town, and everywhere he went, he healed um, the sick. He cast out demons. And it has this phrase, he healed all of their sicknesses and diseases. So I thought, that's odd. It's like he healed all of their beige and all of their brown. You're like, isn't beige kind of brown? What's the difference between a sickness and a disease? And, and it was interesting. The word um, disease or dis-ease is the word nasos, N-O-S-O-S. Uh, a lot of SOSs in sickness, I guess, are in disease. And, and it means infirmity. It means biological. It means brokenness of bone, um, frailty of will, uh, it means, you know, a, a virus or a bacteria invaded the system. Your body's fighting it. You're, you have a disease. But the word sickness was different. It was, it was the word, ah, oh, I got it here. Let me just, it's, it's the word malachia, and it means soft. So Jesus went from town to town, casting out demons, healing all who were biologically and physically ill, and, and healing all of the soft. How many guys would look a little bit farther? Or, or just like get in line for that healing, right? If you're taking this away, baby, I'll take it, you know? I was sitting out there with a friend today and he's got a new little coat on and, and uh, Pastor Jason walked up and said, oh, it's so soft. I said, you never say that to me. He went, oh, that's so soft. I, I made part of that up, but it was, it was, it was really there. That, not, that wasn't a lie, but I made the story shorter for effect. So what, what does that mean? Jesus healed all of their biological issues, but he healed all their soft. And I looked at the Malachia. So what's the root word of Malachia? It's the word Malachos. So what or who is a Malachos? Please hear me. The, the Greek culture that was conquered later by the Roman culture, the Greco-Roman culture, we call it, because there was such a, a combining of those two things, there was the, the practice of, of conquering other people and then taking their citizens as slaves, as property. So if you were a conquered people, you would have to learn the language, the customs, all that. You'd have to become a Greek if Alexander conquered you. You'd have to become a Roman uh, or under the Roman laws and so forth uh, if Caesar conquered you. So the, a, a Malachos was a boy, a prepubescent boy who was chubby and pale and frail and wasn't really good for the fields. 
And the master would bring him in and would sodomize him day after day after day when the master said, I have lust and I want you to satisfy it. Whatever he said, that child had to do at the pains of death if he did not. But as puberty hit and the boyish softness became a manly, you know, it was no longer attractive to the master. And so this molested boy for years would then be put out in the fields that he'd never done with his soft hands, hated by those who worked in those fields because they'd worked since they were children from sunup to sundown seven days a week. And he's been sitting, getting fat and pale in the master's parlors. And he had no one. Can I say just one last thing that might help and it might hurt? It wasn't his fault. He did nothing to deserve that. And he, he doesn't have anybody. Those who said they loved him, used him, and threw him out like a, a lighter that had lost its fluid. Those who his family were, were ashamed of him because he'd, he'd been sodomized by a master for years, and he had no one. That is what a melakos is. Let's go back to John chapter 4. He healed all of their disease, and he healed all of their sickness. Can I suggest to you what I think is happening here? Jesus is not just healing the bodies of men and women and children. He's healing what's been broken on the inside. So come back to this thought. You are not what he did to you. You are not what she did to you. You are not how they victimized you. You are not. You are not. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. I'm not saying it didn't break the pieces of you that God considers beautiful, but I am saying this. If you allow him to, Jesus will not just heal your physical body. Jesus will heal the broken pieces of your heart. And you can become. I just, there was a woman 48 hours ago standing on this stage talking about 15 years in sex slavery. Her response to that was multiple attempts at suicide because the pain of tomorrow was never going to be minimized. The fear, the agony, the terror, the, the rape, the, the torture. She described things. I just had to like put it in another box. I can't listen, listen. I just have to kind of be aware of facts and circumstances because my heart engages with this. I, I got to get up and talk right after this and I just can't. So I'm just going to kind of check out and, and listen or whatever. And she was describing this. You know what ended up happening? She ended up running away from her pimp but remaining a prostitute because that was the only way she knew how to make a living but after that she started like getting help and she got Jesus and then she became a social worker and got her master's degree and started helping kids that have been through it and now she says 6,200 women have now been influenced by her life she's personally helped 600 kids out of sex slavery now let me tell you something that's that's what the devil's afraid of that's what the devil's afraid of, is, is not a prisoner to shame who doesn't want to talk about it and has never told anybody, and I just, it's, it's, I just, I'll just put it behind me, and it won't affect me. You, there's no such thing as an unexpressed emotion. Sooner or later, it comes out in a self-protective way, and in a big explosion, and, but at some point or another, what is inside of us comes out of us. Out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? Man, the mouth's going to say something, right? So we're keeping it in, we're bowling up, because if anybody ever knew what I'd really been through. I just want to move past it. I just, I don't want to talk about it. I just want to move past it. And I, I, I'm not telling you, you know, right now, come to this altar and tell somebody. I'm not, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling you what Jesus has done. He not only healed the physical bodies of people in those cities, he took the wounded of those who'd been conquered. And he said, you're free. Why? Because I tell you you're free. Because I'm making you free. There was something in his touch. There was something in his voice. There was something in the content of his words that when Jesus healed you, your body didn't just get better and your soul stayed a mess. 
He healed every part from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet, all the stuff you can see and all the stuff you can't see because it's deep inside of us. Third thing and last thing is this. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you are not slaves of the opinions of the judgments and of the preferences of others. I, th- I think this is true, but if it's not, forgive me. I, I, th- I don't think anybody can make me something without my permission. I think, I, I think. Maybe they can make me sad without my permission. They can make me grieve without my permission. But I, they, they can't make me a man. They can't make me less than a man. They can't make me a good husband. They can't make me a bad husband. They, I am kind of what, I, I hate to go Popeye on you, but I am what I am, and that's all that I am. And, and if you understand what God sees when he looks at you, you, you then begin to work with that plan. How many guys know that God's plan for your life is not the only plan for your life? Whether it's selling you a product so you can be somebody, the credit card that you deserve, get the platinum card with the same amount of interest as the card that's made out of lead. You deserve this ballroom. You deserve, and you know, I, 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 all, all I know is this, guys. God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for my life. Yes? You agree with that? But the devil does too. And the world does too. And my flesh does too. I better know what God's plan is for my life and know it so well that when I look in the mirror, what I see is what he sees. That when I speak, I speak as one who knows who he is in Christ. Not in gym, not in my education, not in my physical prowess, not in my accomplishments and the certificates on my wall and the medals that hang from races long, long, long since ended, Right? By the way, I finished slower than the people that were walking in the crim, but I finished the race. I was running. When I wasn't throwing up, I was running. When I wasn't at Josh Spencer's place eating pancakes and sausage, I was running. You know? I'm just, those medals don't make me who I am. Jesus does. My failures don't make me who I am. Jesus does. If you're here today and you're being defined by anything less than his plan for your life, you're being robbed. So as the band rejoins me, guys, please um, know this, that no one, and the youth, I believe, are, Given the five-minute warning, no one can make you what they want you to be without your permission, including God. So maybe this will help you give God permission. Who are you then? According to Scripture, who are you? Number one is yours. You're his. If this was a microphone, I could drop it and the sermon would end. If you got it, yeah, who am I? Well, you're his. Well, but what about... I know, but you're his. But I did that. I know, but you're his. But I sinned that one. I know, but you know what somebody did that? I get it. But, but at the moment you say, I'm yours, guess whose you are? <laughs> you're his. Yeah, but people don't like me. They think I'm this. They didn't, they, they're judging me. But I know. And, and those words will fade in time, but God's words stand eternally true. Who are you? You, whoever he says you is. Why? Because you are his. Secondly, you're the best thing God's ever done for you. Who am I? I'm the worst thing I've ever done. No, you're not. According to scripture, you're not the worst thing you've ever done. You're the best thing God's ever done for you. What's the best thing God's ever done for you? How about he loved you so much he sent a part of himself, Jesus Christ, his son, to this world to live as we live, to be tempted in every way we're tempted, yet without sin, to die an atoning death, a sacrifice of the innocent for the forgiveness of the guilty. What, 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 if, what if we walked in the understanding, the freedom that I am not a sinner saved by grace, just barely, but I'm a son and I walk in the grace of the one who saved me? What if? How would that change you, right? What, what about this one? You have divine purpose. Behold the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope. Plans to give you a 
a future. Not only that, but you're actually God's answer. You're God's solution. You're God's provision for your generation. My, one of my favorite verses, you know this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We're God's workmanship. We're his poema. We get our modern word poem. You're the right thing in the right place at the right time with the right stuff. Yeah, but I've been through so much. Can I tell you something? You need to stop thinking in terms of disqualification. Why? Because frankly, my addiction should disqualify me. My lack of education should disqualify me. My lack of experience, 29 years old, coming here to pastor this church, should disqualify me. But when I got here in a blue-collar community with, with little education, with improper English, with an addictive past, what happened was my disqualifications actually became my best qualifications through Christ to reach people who were just like I was, only they didn't have Jesus yet. Does this make sense? But you don't, you don't understand. I, I'm on this list. I've got this record. I've been through, I, and I, I'm just telling you, I have seen God use every willing vessel and sometimes in crazy ways. Ways that should have disqualified you from being a Pharisee, but qualify you for being a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are God's workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. That means, in advance for us to do, means before there was a you, God knowing you and what you'd be going through and where you'd be right now in this room, he, he is using everything, not wasting anything to prepare you to be who he wants you to be in this generation. Generation's asking a lot of questions, Matt. You're God's answer. Generation's a lot of questions, John. A lot of problems. You're God's solution. There, there, there's there's this, this understanding that, well, I've been through, I can't talk about. Can I say something? Let Jesus redeem you from that and relieve the shame of that and then start talking about it to everybody. Because he who the sun sets free, baby, they are dangerous folk. So Father, today, set us free chains of our own manufacturing chains of our own beliefs chains of our own self-condemnation God how could we ever look at the one who gave his son and speak of our condemnation and expect you to say amen heaven does not agree with Satan's verdicts about you God I, I just help us to hear that word heaven the court of heaven does not agree with the condemned in Christ. There's no such thing. Condemnation is condemned. Romans 8, condemnation stands condemned before a merciful God. Will you dance with me? Will you dance with me? I said this yesterday and I haven't talked about it in a long time and I just, there was a girl I really liked. Just, just give me a moment. Keep your heads bowed. Just hear with your heart. There was a moment. Fifth grade, Bablo Boat, you know what the Bablo boat is? It was the, the ride you took to Cedar Point's stupid cousin called Bablo Island. I like this girl, man, from third grade. Her name was Tammy. Never told her, never told anyone. We're getting ready to pull into the, the port there, Wyandotte or Detroit, where the boat stopped. And I, it was the last song. This would be the last dance, the last song. She was going to go to a different junior high. I was going to go to a different junior high. I'm never going to see her again if I don't act now. All the fifth grade boys are on one side on the port side. All the, you know, the fifth grade girls are on the starboard side. Nobody's on the dance floor because we're all terrified of each other. We have feelings. We just have no experiences. And as that song started to play, I crossed the deck. And you could have heard a pin drop on that old boat, man. I, I went across and I extended my hand to her and I said, will you dance with me? And she said, yes. 
You walk to the center of the dance floor in front of all the eyes of Duck Lake Elementary School, fifth class, fifth grade class, 1974. And she put her arms around my neck and she looked into my eyes. And it was at that point I realized for the first time, I don't know how to dance. <laughs> Hadn't quite thought it all the way through. So I put my arms around her neck. And for a moment, it looked like we were about to wrestle or... And when she realized I couldn't dance, she took her arms off around my neck. She looked at me with disgust and she said, oh, you don't even know how to dance. And she walked away and left me standing in the middle of the dance floor. And I tell you that story, one, because I really like the pity that seems to come out of that. It helps me a little bit. The other reason is simply this. My affection for her could not, I don't know. She still had a free will, right? You have a free will. The holy God has crossed, not the dance floor, but the millennia, the light years of all creation to send his son who extends his hand in this room by his spirit here right now to you and says to you, will you dance with me? Now, I didn't know how to dance and Tammy picked up on it and she had a free will. She could have said, well, put your arms on my waist and everything's going to be okay, but she didn't. She said, you know how to dance. She walked away, let me humiliated. I was glad I never saw her again. And you know, we can do that to God, right? Like his spirit's moving in this room right now and there's a hand extended. It's a, it's a metaphor, but you get it, right? Heaven's saying, hey, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like if you were to reach out right now, you could touch it. You could touch him. Don't let shame rob you of this moment. You're gonna have to exercise your free will. Don't let fear rob you of this moment. Don't, don't let past disappointments that you've had rob you of this moment right here. When the God of creation says, will you dance with me? Not will you join a church, not will you carry this Bible, not will you vote this way, and all the stupid stuff that comes out of this. This is about an invitation from one being to you. Will you just, just walk with me now? Just let me put my arms around you. Let me hold you and make you safe for the first time, maybe in your whole life. Father, today I pray. I pray, God. I pray that this room would say yes. I pray that every man, every woman, every child, no matter what they've done, no matter what's been done to them, God, would say yes. Would say yes. If you would, without breaking just the moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're going to open these altars for anybody that would like to come and just find that place on the dance floor, if you will. So why don't you stand your feet? We've called this an altar. We've called this an offering plate. We've called this a hospital. Can we just call this the second level of the Bablo boat? If our answer is yes, then would you just find a place? Close your eyes. Just find a place. It's in your pew. It's right here at this altar today. God, our heart says yes. God, our heart says yes. We will dance with you. No more shame. No more shame. No more shame. Shame off you. Shame off you.